Our energy costs are rising and our power grid seems to be struggling. What's causing this and what is the future of power in Texas? Join us on the CG Hour as we explore this topic with our panel of experts. Welcome to the CG Hour. My name is Fanny Dunnigan, and I am the host of the show where every other month we come to you with industry experts, thought leaders in a variety of industries to share with you their knowledge, insights, and expertise. And this month we're going to talk all about how the grid survived all around energy and what's going on in our state as well as across all the states. But in the meantime, I'd love to see who's joining us. For those of you tuning in, probably through LinkedIn and YouTube on my channel, as well as the CG Infinity channel, let us know. Introduce yourselves. Let us know where you're tuning in from. Drop that in the comments below. We welcome you and thank you for joining us on this show. We are so happy that you took this time to tune in and join us. So drop into the comments where you're tuning in from and introduce yourself. I challenge you to use this opportunity to also network with each other and introduce yourselves. So let's get into it. I wanted to share really quick first a video with you all just to set the context for this show. We're gonna talk all about energy and the power grid in Texas. And I wanna share with you a video of some of the stats and the latest things in the news. So let's roll that.
Welcome back. For those of you that are just joining us now, this is the CG Hour, and we're going to talk all around the how the grid survived and energy reforms and insights and forecasts. So I want to first introduce you all to our amazing panel of guests, starting over here with Jason Baer. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Everyone, Jason is an experienced leader with a strong background in customer operations and managing customer experience. He is the VP of Energy Solutions at CG Infinity. With over 20 years of retail energy experience, he has the ability to work closely with all functional areas of the organization to deliver the business with a focus on customer satisfaction and revenue assurance. Thank you for joining us. And over here, we have Dr. Jay Zhang. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah. Yes, he is the currently the Associate Professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering as well at the University of Texas at Dallas. And he received his PhD in Mechanical Engineering from uh, Raynell Renelson. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And his research expertise and interests are power and energy systems, renewable integration, grid resilience, big data analytics, machine learning, complex engineering systems, and multidisciplinary design optimization. Lots of expertise here. This research has resulted in over 190 peer-reviewed journal and conference publications. So glad you can join us, Dr. Zhang. And then over here, we have Steve Berberick. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Fanny. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. You are the former president and chief executive officer at the California Independent System Operator ISO. He's navigated the ISO through a series of major initiatives, including the world's most expansive integration of renewable resources into the power grid. And his vision for reducing the grid's reliance on fossil fuels have catalyzed many significant programs, including the West Energy Imbalance Market, which welcomes several Western states into the ISO's bulk power markets. You currently provide consulting and advisory services to technology and energy infrastructure clients with over 35 years of experience in the utility, consulting, and banking finance sectors. You also hold an undergraduate degree in finance and an MBA from University of Tulsa. So as you can see, we have huge, huge expertise on our panel. So it's gonna be an exciting and very thought provoking and a huge learning opportunity, I think, for all of us here in the audience. So let's get started. Um, as you saw from that video, there's a lot of energy changes across our state of Texas and we also hope to learn from other states as well as California. Um, let's start with you, Jason. Can you give us kind of like a broad overview of how power is distributed in Texas, just for our general audience here? Yeah, it's, it's not much different than others, but keep it in a really broad range. Power is generated from numerous resources, right? We have natural gas power plants, we have coal, we have solar, we have wind, uh, even nuclear. Um, that has to get to the end-use consumer, residents, and businesses, and that's 
kind of transmitted and distributed through those utilities. Um, and there's numerous lines to get that there, right? Um, the facilitator of all that specifically for the majority of Texas is known as Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, right? And they were formed many years ago, but when deregulation happened or retail choice happened, they were really supposed to help facilitate that competitive on the wholesale side, but also on the retail side for the areas that are open to choice. But they also play a bigger role in the sense of, so not only if you're in a retail, retail choice, you, ERCOT is kind of managing that piece of it for everybody, for the biggest chunk of Texas. Got it. And how does that differ from you know, your experience in California? Is it done the same way in California or any differences? The major difference between Texas and California is that te Texas has a full-blown uh, retail energy market, whereas uh, California does not. On the wholesale level, where power producers uh, and, and uh, utilities buy and sell power, the markets are very, very similar. Um, interestingly enough, they're both single-state uh, grid operators. However, uh, the major difference between California and Texas is California is connected throughout the West, uh, through transmission lines and through power sources, whereas Texas maintains its own grid. Yeah, and so, I mean, anytime we think of energy, we think of our bills and also a very significant event that happened in 2021, and that is the ice storm, right? Uh, Dr. J, I mean, it affected so many Texans as we saw in the statistics of that video. What, in your opinion, were some of the major factors that contributed to it? Yeah, um, the, the winter storm has been studied um, for over a year now. Um, there are different reports uh, analyzing what happened, why that happened. So, of course, we experienced the historic low temperature, like single digits, even below uh, zero uh, yeah. Fahrenheit, right? So sure. that's very, very rare. Yeah. So then the, we lost, like, um, one third of our generation, like um, we lost about uh, 15 gigawatt, um, uh, gigawatt, like natural gas, uh, like wow. a few gigawatt wind. So because it was so cold, a lot of natural gas pipeline was frozen. Um, the wind turbine, some of them, they are not rotating either. But anyway, wind is not the main resource for winter because our peak planning for the wind is the summer. I mean, uh, during mm -hmm. the winter time, the wind actually, they are planned for maintainers. So they are doing a pretty good job during the um, uh, storm. So yeah, I mean, weatherization, that's uh, one um, big factor. So since we are not forcing, and ERCOT also cannot force the utility to do weatherization. So um, yeah, that's caused this uh, major event. I think we are learning things, trying to improve resiliency of our power grid. Hopefully we can avoid this kind of situation in the future. Sure, yeah, it caused so much impact to all of us. From your point of view, Jason, what, what were other factors or in addition to that that you think caused that? Yeah, I think weatherization loss? was a big part of it, right? I think looking back, I mean, I think this was the first time, at least as long as I've been around, that every county in the state of Texas was under some kind of winter weather something, right? Whether it was a warning, advisory, so watch. Um, and so a little bit caught off guard, right? Now we had an event 10 years prior that we kind of should have learned from a little bit. Obviously it wasn't as bad. You mentioned the negative. I woke up that morning and it was a negative two and I'm like, this is, I've never seen that here. Is this right? Texas, right? right? <laughs> and then you had wind chill in, 
I mean, it's cold, right? Um, so there's no doubt weatherization is, I think m part of it is because we had plenty of generation assets. They were not available, right? So because natural gas lines flowed, coal was coal couldn't get to where it needed to go. Railroad lines were tr were iced over. So there was a numerous things that I think we need to prepare for um, for the next one. Um, but you know, outside of that, there are probably some things that consumers could do. Right? We need to learn how to use less. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And you know, through energy efficiency pro products, whatever. But Outside of that, if we continue to depend on the grid to generate and meet the demand we're gonna have for growth and all that, I think we're gonna have some other challenges down the road. So you mentioned that mainly in the summer we, were, we can use the wind. So does that mean in the winter we're mainly using natural gas? It's a good question. I didn't look at that time, yes. During the winter storm, for sure we were. Um, but again, once some of those pipelines were frozen, that became an issue as well, right? Um, I know that there was coal plants going. I think wind, for the most part, was non-eventful. Non um, solar for sure was, yeah. right? Uh, nuclear probably played its role, but it was only minimal, right? Yeah. So uh, there's no doubt we were probably dependent on the natural gas power plants that were available mm. at the time. What's your perspective, Steve, as you kind of, as we look back a year ago, what were some of these factors from your perspective that contributed to the, the problem? There was a, frankly, a complete breakdown in supply chain and the energy mm -hmm. infrastructure um, because the outages, if you go back and look at the outages, there was, there was a nuclear plant that was out. Uh, there were coal plants that were out. There were gas plants that were out and the wind was not producing. Now the wind w probably would have produced but the blades were frozen over. Um, so I think, now there's lots of wind in Iowa as an example, and it operates in cold conditions. So it is possible to operate in cold conditions, but frankly, the infrastructure in Texas is designed for warm weather. Mm. So I th And um, I think as was noted earlier, there was an incident 10 years ago in Texas, and I think, I think those lessons could have been applied better and may not have had the same level of issue. Uh, but this is an example of uh, planning that needs to be done for, I'll, I'll use a bit of an industry term, both tails, extreme heat and extreme cold. You have to take care of both of those. Is it a lot, I, and I ask this more as an audience member, like is it a lot to kind of like winterize or summarize things for that kind of one in 10 storm or one in 20, 20 year storm? Um, is it worth the investment, or is it, um, you know, like what are the what are the thoughts around that? Uh, let me take that in two parts. First, the wind you the wind equipment in Texas you can't winterize. Mm. Um, the the wind equipment in the Upper Midwest has internal heating and all kinds of technologies that were not put in into the Texas wind, so that takes wind off. Now the natural gas plants are readily winterizable. Um, and I think those steps should and have been taken. Now, the, the, the gas plants are only as good as the gas pipeline. Um, and I would assert that limited has been done to winterize the gas pipelines that go to those gas plants. So while the gas plants, I think, have been winterized, further supply chain 
winterization, I think, remains to be to be done. Got it. Got it. So, you know, I I see. You know, I've lived in Texas for over 13 years now, and it kind of. I'm very curious as to why, up till maybe two years ago, everything seemed to be fine and normal, and there weren't these kind of issues. But how do we get to this point where there seems to be more energy shortages now? Jason, your thoughts? I think part of it is just the growth of Texas, right? Mm -hmm. We've had corporations that have relocated, True. which then bring people, right? Either they're either relocating or, you know, uh, and that has, we've seen a housing boom for sure the last couple of years, uh, especially where I live. Sure. I've yeah. never seen so many houses and even apartments and stuff put up so fast in the last couple of years, right? So that increases the need for electricity, right? Um, and at the same time, there were generation assets that were being retired or decommissioned, right? Some were no long, they, they were planned to do that, right? But it was kind of a kind of a perfect storm, so to speak. And so we need some investment in those generation assets, right? Whether that's solar, wind, natural gas, right? Some of those need to be retrofitted. So I think a lot of it's attributed to those two factors, right? Increase of people coming here, right? Yeah. Business opportunities, whatever, but also lack of, or, you know, turning down some generation assets. Wow. So. It's like a culmination of so many things right, yep. across the board, right? Dr. Zhang, from your perspective and, and then through some of your research, right? Like, why are we at this point that we are now? To maybe add on to what Jason said. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the demand is growing, so that, that's for sure. We do see the historic peak load changing every year. Um, traditionally, of course, we are dealing with the summer heat, right? Texas, we have the peak load during summer, so like 75 uh, gigawatt typically. Mm. If you see the winter storm, we are already reached to very close to 70 gigawatt. That's pretty uncommon for Texas, right? So, and because of this kind of things, um, so, um, and the other thing is, you do see extreme events, hurricanes, white fires, many things are happening nowadays. We follow news, but we don't see those things so often in the past, right? right. I mean, coming to a big picture like climate change, many other things that cause certain extreme events. So that will come to the resiliency of the entire power grid and other infrastructures, transportation and many others. Everything is connected. So, yeah, so we sure. have to deal with what we have right now, try to make our power grid or big infrastructures more resilient, mm. doing innovative technologies, a lot of like um, machine learning techniques, I mean, hybrid energy system, like hydrogen, a lot of new things are on the picture right now. So trying to make our life better, yeah. So we got population increases, retirement of systems, extreme weather, right? Steve, any other things that you're seeing that's contributing to this change in our power grid? Well, I, it, uh, Texas is not unique um, in its challenges on its power grid. As, as you all know, I was in California and it's had several close calls in the last couple of years and, and in 2000 actually had some blackouts. Um, New England has its issues because of the gas pipeline infrastructure limitations. So it's not, Texas is not unusual, but let's kind of peel it back and look at Texas by itself because it's, it, is, it is its own grid. The fact is uh, there's been population growth and load growth and the, the investment has not followed that. 
and then you got to peel it back as why hasn't that happened? Yeah. Uh, Texas has a unique um, energy only market without getting into all the details <laughs> of that. And I, I think that you have to take a step back and examine whether that market design is adequate to foster the investment needed to keep up with the load and population growth. Um, because that's what will have to happen for the economy to continue to flourish here. So from your perspective, what, what might be one initiative that needs to be started or, or picked back up? Well, uh, unfortunately, some of them are third rails, um, and I don't want to get into, well, there are third rails here in, in Texas, as an example. Um, it's an energy-only market, and let me just, let me just uh, compare and contrast for a moment. In California, there's, there's a resource adequacy requirement that, that gives, you, you, well, the power plants then get capacity payments in addition to energy payments. The th same thing happens in the upper Midwest in, in MISO, and which is the Midwest, Mid-Continent ISO, as well as in PJM and, and some of the others. They have a way of compensating capacity. Texas doesn't have that capacity compensation. The other element of it, I'm not advocating for, it's just a fact, Texas is not connected outside of Texas. Yeah. So when California, as an example, gets into short conditions, it, it can get power from the Pacific Northwest or Canada or Mexico or throughout the West, whereas Texas doesn't. So it's more incumbent upon Texas to make sure the investment follows the load and economic needs here in California. From your perspective, Jason, what, what can be done looking towards the future to address some of these things? Well, like Steve was talking about, the question is, should the market design change, right? And I'm sure that's been discussed and over-discussed over the last couple of years, right? I'm sure plenty of people have come and said we need to transition from an energy-only market, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it is going to be interesting to see, because nothing's come out of that yet, right? We are still pretty much an energy-only market, which means you know, you can make as much money as the cap allows you to, right? But that hasn't shown to entice investment in generation assets. And one we haven't really talked about is, even if you have generation assets, you need the transmission lines to do that. And that infrastructure is old. And, you know, we've seen, I saw an article recently that um, there's going to be a new one put in down in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley area, right? Um, not going to be really till 2026, oh, wow. but it's also a billion dollars, yeah. right? And who's paying for that? Somehow that's going to trickle down to us all mm -hmm. as consumers, so right? Yeah. Um, but also it's going to take some time. Um, so we're going to need that those infrastructure changes and additions, but I don't know what's going to spurn it. I hope we don't wait for another uh, weather event. Yeah, we may uh, not have the yeah. three-year time span to, yeah. to get there, right? What have you seen from your research? What's possible for the future? What can Texas do? So uh, a lot of things are happening right now. A lot of research uh, trying to uh, go ongoing, try to uh, help the resiliency problems, such as uh, we, we, we deploy more like DERs, distributed energy resources. I mean, we do see electrical vehicles. I mean, many people install solar panels. California, of course, is leading in that mm. uh, space. And those a lot of this we call them disputed energy resources because they are at the uh, customer level they can directly power their house yeah. or even neighbors uh, in the future possibly 
that could potentially make the community level more resilient. For mm -hmm. example, doing some disasters. Hey, I can use my own Tesla or some other EVs, batteries, as a part of my own home, right? right. Or in our neighborhood, if we have uh, multiple panels, EVs, we can share within the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. To make that more resilient. Almost so, like grassroots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, from the entire centralized level, I mean, Ercot and others, they, they also think about the new designs. Like, um, they, they, they do change the cap market price from 9,000 to 5,000 after the UV storm. So right. capacity market is one, another thing. But I don't think the capacity market will solve the storm issue. I mean, because that we lost one third of the generation, but that could solve potentially other problem. But yeah. We're not sure about that will work for Texas or not, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, many things, are, and people are still exploring things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because things are changing. Our grid is also changing with more um, demand going on right now, right? Yeah. There's this, I almost feel like we need to like increase the sense of urgency, right? <laughs> to, to get those things in place. Um, and as we kind of continue to learn here, we wanted to share with you a video that we've prepared to kind of share with you the history of how we got here and kind of like a Texas Power Market 101 to share with the audience. So let's roll that right now. The Texas market is unique in two key ways. The first component is that it is the only state in the contiguous 48 with its own power grid. It established this grid almost 100 years ago in response to the U.S. Congress's passage of the Federal Power Act. It regulated the transfer of electricity between states, and the Lone Star State did not want to have that regulation applied to it. So in 1935, Texas Utilities Companies got together and agreed they would ship no power outside of Texas's borders. That has insulated Texas from the regulations of the United States for the last hundred years. In 1970, Texas established ERCOT, the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, to manage this grid. And in 1995, about 20 years later, it deregulated its traditional monopolies, as did many other states and many countries around the world. Texas passed Senate Bill 373, which created wholesale competition. And then four years later, it established Senate Bill 7, which created retail competition. It broke up its old monopolies and gave ERCOT a new responsibility, namely managing the commercial operations of Texas. Today, in Texas, as in 20 other states and most of the rest of the developed world, customers can shop for their electricity provider and choose among many different products. But Texas structured its market differently in one other key way. In other markets around the world, power generators are paid to keep a little extra capacity on the side in case of emergencies. This is something called a capacity charge. Everyone in those markets pays a little bit more for electricity to keep this reserve. Texas designed its market without these reserves, instead relying on competition to incent generators to build ahead of demand. But Winter Storm Uri was so costly that it challenged Texas' unique market design. And so today, in 2022, the Public Utility Commission of Texas is considering new restructuring proposals, including a capacity market like most other states, or more likely something unique.
Thank you for tuning in. For those of you that are just dropping in, we are talking all about how the grid survived. We have a question from our YouTube, uh, Dolores Garcia. Hey, Dolores, welcome to the show. She asks, how are the power grid operators adjusting for climate change going forward? Um, would any of you like to tackle that question? I, I don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, the power grid operators, let me just speak to the one that I ran in, in California, and I know that ERCOT does the same thing, um, regularly simulates different um, operating conditions. And those include outages, but also weather events. Um, and I know in California, we looked, again, to use the tails, uh, at more extreme events to see how the grid would operate. Historically, uh, planning has been done so that you did what's called a one in ten you one in ten analysis. So something that would happen once in ten years, but now I think you have to broaden that to, to look at it more likely that something's going to happen more frequently, yeah. either on the heat side or on the cold side. And the grid operators can and should simulate that, and and it will show you whether you're likely to have outages or not. Mm. Um, and then you can plan to that accordingly. We also have another question around, and I think this touched on something you mentioned, Dr. Mm -hmm. Zing. Um, after the blackout of 2021, some homeowners invested in solar panels, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned like, it's almost like taking on our own responsibility as the personal homeowner do you think it's a worthwhile investment for personal homeowners to start investing in things like solar panels, generators, those kind of things? Um, great question. On financial side, I, I, do, I cannot comment on that. Uh, mm. From technical side, yeah, we do see the growth in solar panel. Um, if you look at the solar installations in Texas, including both small scales like on the roof, on the roof or utility scale, in the last two years after the storm, we have like double or tripled. So before the storm, we only had like four gigawatt solar generation. So now we have about 10 gigawatt. Mm -hmm. um, basically, Texas has a plan in the next five years, we already have like over 10 gigawatt solar in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So we will see a lot of solar installation in the next few years mm -hmm. that will definitely uh, increase the renewable penetration to our grid. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing, but of course, in the meantime, that will also add challenges to the grid operators, right, with yeah. those solar, wind, and many other things on the grid. Got it. Yeah. Um, well, so let's dive a little deeper now, right? We were feeling the pain of higher energy bills, right? And uh, looking towards the future, Jason, what do you think, you know, what's what are the major factors contributing to that? We've already kind of alluded to that, but if you can kind of reiterate, like, why, how and why are all our energy bills going up? Well, obviously there's, the biggest chunk is going because natural gas has gone up right now, and we depend on natural gas uh, pretty heavily uh, for electric generation. Um, and so that's gone up probably threefold since where it was even, you know, during the COVID times, 2020, it was relatively cheap, mm. right? But during the winter storm and right after that, it started to ramp up, right? And so now we see it because of, you know, we have LNG issues down in the port. We see issues with, you know, the, the war with Russia and Ukraine. 
Um, we are concerned about other weather events, we're concerned about growth, right? I know that I looked at a Department of Energy IA report um, in the last month or two that they expect that natural gas will still trade at $9 through January. Uh, it's relatively low right now in the sense of that, but then they expect it to kind of stay in the mid $6 range, which, you know, again, back in 2020 and right before the storm, we were dollar and a half to two bucks. So that's going to drive a lot of the electricity price, right? And there's probably a lot of prudency in there right now because we're having to, in Texas specifically, keep our reserve margins. And so that's a cost, right? It's kind of like an insurance premium, so to speak. To store it. Basically. Right, and to make sure it's available and so we don't have issues again. Um, and, you know, the load continues to grow. We talked about this earlier. Load continues to grow, right? Um, and so the demand is going to continue to go up. So I think those are kind of, you know, what I see as some of the factors. There's plenty of others out there, trust me. <laughs> and Steve, like, we're obviously seeing it in Texas, but is it the same across all the states? And even like into Europe, right? We're hearing about all the, the energy costs going up. Or do you think some states are, are buffered from this? Or is it across the board? Well, natural gas is a commodity and natural gas trades pretty, uh, unless there's a constraint on pipeline someplace, it's pretty much the same price throughout the US. Mm. Um, now, in Europe, it's much higher than it is in the US because there are no pipelines that go to Europe, obviously, and they have to get it on tankers on, you know, through liquefied natural gas and the ports and things like that. So, but that is also creating an upward pressure on the natural gas price here in the US because some of it's now being shipped to Europe. So it's further constraining um, the, the, uh, the volume of natural gas here available in the US. Um, I agree that natural gas prices are going to continue to stay elevated um, for all of these reasons. So is it a continuous ascent, you think? Is there a, a relief in the horizon or, or no? There has been, um, in the electric system we talked about earlier, there's been underinvestment, but there's also been underinvestment in um, oil and gas production um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that is now come back to haunt us and you can't readily increase production. So to increase production, they're going to have to drill new wells. Um, and that takes some time to get um, uh, the volume back up. There has been an in uptick um, in drilling, um, but it will take a bit before it gets to the market. To catch up. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Dr. Zhang, as you look towards the next five years, you mentioned solar, obviously. Are there other sources of energy that we can be tapping into or that you see on the horizon through your research? Wind and solar definitely are still growing, and especially in Texas. Mm -hmm. So we don't see any sign that the growth will be slowing down. So now we have 25% wind in Texas, about 4-5% solar, totally already 30. This, this will probably grew to, I mean, 40 or 50 uh, in the next few years, right? Mm -hmm. So some other technologies we are, which are not widely deployed yet, a lot of like uh, advancements in the like small module reactors. I mean, we see like big nuclear plants. We have two, one yeah. in Dallas, one in Houston. But now we are exploring like very small, like a few megawatts, like small module reactor that it can be moved so, so a lot of technologies um, developed there. So 
of course, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, distributed energy resources like electrical vehicles, batteries, yeah. those things we still see there continues to grow. That can also help at certain like uh, distribution or microgrid level, uh, which can be very useful during extreme events. Good. Um, for those of you that are tuning in, uh, let us know your energy questions. We have this super experienced panel of experts. Uh, I think we had a few glitches on the LinkedIn side, so feel free to jump onto the CG Infinity YouTube channel and ask your questions there. We have a question or a comment from Irfan on YouTube. Consumers should invest in solar energy setup and retail energy providers should buy the excess energy generated by the consumer, which will help the energy companies to meet the demand. Jason, is that a form of like, how much can we, would we ever buy from other states and store it here? Or how does that Well, I think work? We, we talked a bit about that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, ERCOT currently is kind of interstate grid, right? They only support yeah. Texas. We're not really tied to anywhere else, right? Uh, as it relates to, I think the question is, you know, we need solar and retail electricity providers buy that back, even on an individual level. That doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. There are some retail electricity providers that offer credits, right, for distributed generation, mm -hmm. but holistically, most of them don't. Um, and it causes some pain points for them, right? That they expected a load forecast to look a certain way, and then somebody kind of does something material that changes by adding solar, that looks different to them, and they could actually be harmed to some degree the way the market works as a retail electricity provider. Um, but you also got to contemplate that there are co-ops, cooperatives and municipalities in the Texas that are not part of the retail choice that don't actually offer that either. Mm -hmm. um, I live in a co-op and we just had our, so do I. We, just, yeah. we just had our recent uh, annual meeting and that was, I promise you through all the, cause it was virtual, there was probably 10 questions about why don't you allow us to do solar and buy back, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's, only isolated to the choice areas. I think it's got to be contemplated at a broader level than that. Um, and I don't know that we're going to get there anytime soon without pressure from consumers or some legislative push, maybe. Got it. It's going to be a tough one, I think, for Texas. For those of you that are tuning in, um, especially energy professionals, we're going to dive even deeper in the next segment of our Q&A. But in the meantime, we wanted to play for you this segment from CG Infinity of their Road to Dreamforce, the Salesforce conference. Let's play that. Our journey to Dreamforce starts right here, right now, from the famous Marshall Point Lighthouse in the beautiful state of Maine. Hey everyone, here at DFW Airport, ready for the first leg of my trip to Dreamforce. Hello everyone. Good morning. traveling alone. Several CG Infinity Salesforce consultants will embark on their own unique journey to Dreamforce. Here I am at the 
Toronto Pearson International Airport. Ready to fly to San Francisco for my first week course. just said all right let's see who gets there fastest or let's see who comes up with you know the catchiest snazziest idea for a program where we can get it on social media and we talked about a lot of those things but really where we settled was about the quality like how we're gonna get where we're going and what do we pick up along the way what do we learn along the way and how does that help us grow so I'm very grateful. I've had a great trip. Me and Mark doing pretty good here. Uh, I've got all the big comfortable accommodations here on my train, but I've got these beautiful views. I've got these great people I'm connecting with. I'm learning about people that I wouldn't normally have met. And I just look forward to doing more of the same when I get up to Dreamforce. See y'all on another day. Bye. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. For those of you that are just dropping in, you're watching the CG Hour talking about how the grid survived. We're getting great questions in the comments in YouTube here. Jim Smelly says, since Texas has reduced its peak price for energy from 9,000 to 5,000, won't that disincentivize the building of more generation capacity? What do you think, Steve? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, again, uh, Texas is an energy-only market, so for someone looking to do an investment to build a power plant, as an example, they, they will have to model what kind of prices they will get. And generally, you know, people talk about a $5,000 or $9,000 per megawatt hour price. Those usually only happen a few hours a year. So if you're a power plant building a billion dollar, or if you're a, a developer building a billion dollar power plant, you need to make sure you get plenty of those hours to do that. So if you're getting uh, those same hours at 5,000 now versus 9,000 now, it's going to create a different economic signal for someone interested in investing in power plants in, in Texas. Got it. Um, and Dr. Zhang, I wanted to ask you this question that we got from Mike Reeves in the audience. Because you talked about solar, you talked about wind. Um, his question is, what's your opinion on nuclear power and will that solve the supply issue? What are your thoughts around nuclear? So nuclear has pros and cons. I mean, of course, we, we, we read news, we hear news, what's nuclear about. Uh, regarding the energy uh, generation, uh, with a lot of new development, as I mentioned earlier, so we are pushing those smaller model reactors or micro reactors, those as, as a smaller level. So of course, safety is still the most important yeah. factor, there's no doubt. So um, then going beyond, I mean, if we, if we have this model reactor, micro reactor work pretty well, we can actually deploy them in 
many different locations like refineries which are energy intensive industry they still use a lot of like heavy like gas oil things right and some other remote areas we can also like uh, port for like uh, electrical ship charging in the future or electrical vehicle charging in the future mm -hmm. so we do see a lot of potential use of nuclear especially for small micro reactors but so as far as I know, so uh, we are trying to get our first small model reactor to be tested by end of this decade. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's see what will happen, and uh, we do see some potentials uh, there. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, part of me feels like we're racing against time here. <laughs> um, Jason, let's get into the business side of it. What do you see as the business climate for new and existing energy companies in Texas? Yeah, I think we're always going to see new, you know, retail electricity riders coming in. Uh, I think we've seen some that have tried to come in with different or diverse product offerings, right, versus just being commodity centric or even within the commodity centric be a little bit, you know, flexible and see how, what product offerings they can get to customers that are willing to take those, right? Um, so I don't know that that will ever change specifically for Texas. Unfortunately, with the winter storm, we had some forced consolidation, so to speak. Um, but we've also seen a lot of M&A activity, which I think is enticing for, especially anybody independent coming in, to build a business and then, you know, reap the benefits of that down the road. Um, and so that's part of you know, this market, and that's just kind of what I think it'll always be. Um, I hope that we will see some more diverse product offerings, though, value-added stuff outside of just commodity-specific uh, things. Um, so. Got it. Let's take a quick look at a graph that we pulled up here. Um, this is energy use by fuel source in 2021. Obviously, we've talked about natural gas being the top one and then descending order, wind, coal, nuclear, solar, and, and others. Um, and this is kind of for, for anyone on this panel. Where do you kind of see the, the speed of adoption? So there are obviously lots of different options, but do you see one of them being faster to adoption than another to kind of catch up to make up for the natural gases, natural gases uh, gas prices going up? Well, I think in all of the above is always the best response on this. And let me take a step deeper into that. Um, I'm not sure you're going to add a lot of coal to the system for lots of reasons. But um, building a natural gas plant is relatively easy compared to some of the others. Um, and I think that there can be more of those that will help um, with reliability. Won't necessarily bring down the price because as we talked about natural gas has gone up in price. Um, the, the wind, we can add more wind to the system, but there are times when you examine it and the wind is not blowing, so you need to have something in behind it. That's where the natural gas resources come in. And then I will say firsthand, I know this from California experience, solar um, at five or six o'clock at night, it goes away and the air conditioning load uh, doesn't. Okay. Right. So the same phenomena here happens in Texas. In fact, the air conditioning load continues all night long. Yeah. Uh, you need to have something to be able to service that. So I, I think natural gas is gonna play a, a big and if not bigger role uh, going forward. But I, I think the investment should be across the board though, 
because renewables, the good thing about renewables, they don't have a fuel cost. So the more you add them to the mix, the better your pricing is going to be. Got it. Um, we have a question from the audience, Jonathan Goldstein. He asks, what can be done to incentivize exploration companies to leverage the land lease rights that they have not yet utilized, but that could contribute to our energy strategy four to five years from now? Would you like to tackle that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, a lot of um, land probably they, they could be used for those renewable generation also such. For wind and solar, when you build large plants, we do have to lease the land. So mm -hmm. in the meantime, you can also explore like a combination use, like you can do agriculture and solar together, ah. make things happen, trying to increase the profits of the landowners or others, right? Um, yeah, so I think that that's leverage probably something we should leverage. Got it. Uh, Jason, do you think this energy crisis has slowed down with the investment in solar and wind at all? Or are we still in this kind of critical point? Well, I think to what Steve alluded to a minute ago, Texas, we typically don't cool down at night. So if solar goes away and the wind stops blowing, right? The sun goes down, the wind stops blowing, we still have load, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Especially this last summer, we experienced, you know, one of the hottest summers I can remember. It's not the hottest, but it is one of the hottest and for a long tenure, right? Um, and when it doesn't get below, you know, 83, 84, 85 degrees at night, it doesn't cool off. Mm -hmm. your, your load's pretty consistent, right? Yeah. There is some curtailment, but there is most of it's pretty consistent. So I think renewables as a whole is part of the solution, but also is going to create additional problems for us down the road. And I think Steve probably knows that best from his experience in California. Um, but we see it here in Texas as well. So it's, it's kind of a catch 22, right? Um, I don't know that we'll ever get away from needing either natural gas or even coal plants to cover that. So as we look towards the future and moving towards that, that direction, how does government policy play into all this, right? Are there, there's things changing and what do you see as maybe hope or optimistic things that we can look forward to through policy from government? Well, I think policy and economics can play hand in hand. Um, certainly there are some macro policies to cut carbon, to add renewables to the system. Um, there are also economics. Um, we had talked about nuclear as an example just a few minutes ago. I'm not um, big on uh, nuclear simply because of economics. Uh, because if you think a, power a nuclear power plant is expensive, it is and generally ends up being three times what you expected it to be expensive at. Um, so put, you know, wind and solar is far less expensive, far less expensive than building a nuclear plant. And we saw this in California. There are technologies that are developing, storage as an example, that, that can be paired with renewables to help with the intermittency. And you, know, you can charge it during the day and use it at night. And, and so I'm optimistic about technologies that are coming. And I think there will be other fuels like hydrogen um, that could come into the mix as well. Dr. Zan, when we talked before the show, you mentioned hydrogen as well. What are, what are the developments that you're seeing around that? 
So we probably see the news on these hydrogen initiatives um, from different channels, right? So this um, infrastructure bill, actually, they, they invest a lot of things uh, in energy, uh, including hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So actually, we are doing this um, $7 billion investment to multiple hydrogen hubs. So hydrogen have many good benefits. For example, we have the long-term storage together with the battery short-term storage. That could be some additional venues for wind and solar, as we mm -hmm. said earlier. Right? Wind and solar, if you have more, we may have extra energy power to contain something, right? Now, actually, we are talking about using those uh, extra uh, wind and solar to produce hydrogen using some electrolyzers. Because in, in the US, now, I think in Texas, we have uh, 2 million tons hydrogen produced nowadays every year. So that majority of them coming from the fossil fuels. So we are talking about to do the green hydrogen, which means using wind, solar, some other resources to produce hydrogen. So that will, I think hydrogen will play a big picture, especially in Texas, uh, because we are a high hydrogen consumer, together with California, of course. Jason, do you see any things that you're looking forward to, hopefully, in our government policies that could be implemented? Well, we'll see. We got the Texas legislative session coming back up in the new year. Um, the last time, I can't count how many bills were you know, presented. Uh, there were numerous bills passed into law. Uh, I think there will still be things that come in. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to see much from the federal level because Typically, the federal level said that's a state issue. Um, and I think after, you know, this winter storm in the last session, when everybody was kind of caught off guard, they were literally in it. I think there will be some additional things discussed. Um, I haven't looked to see when anything has yet, but I suspect we'll be busy next year with the legislative session. Well, any final words as we kind of come to a close? There's obviously so many additional things that we can learn here, but this has really given us a great snapshot of where we are now and some of the things we can put into place looking towards the future. Final words, Steve? I, my final word that, it, believe it or not, electricity is gonna be exciting. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason being is I think more and more things in our economy, including transportation, are gonna be electrified and it's going to need, we're going to need more of it, and it's going to need to be more reliable. Got it. Dr. Zhang? Yeah, looking at the future, I mean, we, we do see on um, those uh, high penetration renewables, a lot of energy efficiency techniques that creates opportunities, challenges as a research. So, I mean, we are trying to develop new technologies, yeah. trying to help to make our power grid or large infrastructure more resilient, reliable, and of course, less um, uh, costly, yeah. Got it. And Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with both of these gentlemen that, you know, we're excited to see how technology and, you know, retrofitting and new stuff coming in is going to help us. Um, but like to Steve's point, we, we don't know what things like electric vehicles are going to do yeah. to us, right? And as transportation gets electrified holistically, that just adds to it, right? And so we know it's coming. Hopefully we are taking the steps to prepare for those things and anything else that comes up, right? Uh, and hopefully it doesn't take years to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that speed of adoption, yeah. right? <laughs> so it, it's fascinating and uh, this reminds me of 
our friends and partners at Alliance of Technology and Women. So many things that we need to be learning and building in our science and technology and engineering and math industries. So let's roll that video from our friends at Alliance of Technology and Women. Do you see yourself trying to meet someone else's expectation and are falling short? Or do you have certain expectations of people in your life and it's not being met? In either cases, it's going to lead to disappointments. And living with disappointments in life is going to adversely affect relationships. On October 13th at 6 p.m. Central Time, I am going to be speaking on behalf of DFW Alliance of Technology and Women on the power of creating agreements as an alternate to having expectations which leads to disappointments. My name is Pradeepa Narayanaswamy and I look forward to seeing you there. We, I still see tons of questions coming through here on our channels. So we were going to go through and kind of reply to them through comments, uh, things like power storage, as well as other investments and forecasting. So I'm sorry, we will have to wrap up the hour, but we will follow up through the comments for those of you that are interested. And it is a fascinating topic that we have today. And let's take this discussion offline. Be sure to connect with all our guests here. Jason Baer with CG Infinity, Dr. Jay Zhang from the University of Texas in Dallas, as well as Steve Berberick with the um, consulting. <laughs> Do you want to give a shout out to your consulting? <laughs> So busy. Advisor. <laughs> there we go. And um, so be sure to connect with all of them, especially on LinkedIn. And uh, I want to share with you our next month's topic. It is going to be all around the future of work. Uh, we've kind of settled out after the pandemic, though it's still around. Um, where are we now with hybrid, in-office, virtual kind of working? We're going to discuss that next time on November 16th, and that will be the future of work. And I want to close out with our tagline from our sponsors. It's always about people first and driven to transform. Thank you, CG Infinity. Thank you to all of you in the audience. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next time.